everyone to the Disco Posse podcast. My name is Eric Wright. I'm going to be your host today. Don't forget to keep following along. You can go to discopossepodcast.com, get show notes, links, and more. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. And with that, let's get started. Thank you very much for, for listening, folks. My name is Eric Wright. As always, you can find me. I'm online. I'm at Disco Posse. Uh, you're proudly listening to the freshly rebranded Disco Posse podcast. Uh, if you've been listening for a while, you may have heard some, uh, we used to call it GC on demand. I've done a, done a ton of neat stuff. Uh, speaking of you know, stuff that you've probably read and heard, I definitely am very proud today. We've got uh, a, somebody who, just like any good radio person, I got to say, uh, you know, first time caller, long time listener. Mm-hmm. I've been a huge fan for, for years, you know, especially over the last couple of years, watching some really neat stuff going on. Proud to ask and share some time here with Charity Majors. If you don't know Charity, uh, she she does a ton of different things. Uh, I, I tell you, I can't even give a better buyer than you can, Charity. So with that, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself. Tell us where we can find you online, and then we're going to talk about a bunch of different things. Sure. Uh, my blog is at charity.wtf, uh, and uh, my, honey, my, my company is at honeycomb.io, and you can find me on Twitter at nipsytipsy. Um, I'm, I still identify very much as an operations engineer, ops engineer. I was a sysadmin too, uh, in the past. Um, I love infrastructure. I love operations. I love, to me, it's like operations is where beautiful computing theory meets stubborn, messy reality, you know, and I, I love those friction points. I love taking ideas that have some traction and making them into actual real products that people can rely on. And I would say one of the, my favorite lines of, of many that, that I always see rolling by is I, I, you test in production. And, and yeah. yeah, you do. Very openly. Um, it, well, you can, you can admit it or not. <laughs> That's right. It's like, the, it's like the security thing. People always say there's, only, there's two, kinds of, of secure, or two kinds of systems. Those have been compromised and those that you haven't realized yes. have been compromised, right? Yes. yes. I'm a fan uh, of the embrace reality uh, school of thought. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny, like, if we could explore, God, I'd like to we'll, we'll choose another time. I want to really just, like, dig in for an hour plus on, on Honeycomb and, and the challenges you saw. We'll talk a bit about that shortly. Because of, you know, this, I'm a firm believer in that the humans have a really strangely high pain tolerance in, in IT oh, operations. absurdly high. Yes. <laughs> that, right? Yeah. So, of the many things that I, I've been able to enjoy and for folks that have followed you online you're you create incredible threads very honest open threads about like active discussions that we're kind of having and and i love that you you expose things that that create good real good conversations and it's it's neat because sometimes it's tough these are tough subjects that we kind of just we know are going on I think that I have an instinct to always lean into the pain. Like wherever I'm feeling pain from, I, there's nothing in me that wants to run away from it. I always want to lean and, fi- and figure out where is this coming from? What if we push it again and again and again? Does it keep hurting or does it feel better? Because the funny thing about pain, like there's all different kinds of pain that your body has, right? But there are lots of different kinds of pain that just tell you this is what's changing. This is what is active. This is what's moving and it's unfamiliar. So it feels really weird to us right? There are certainly some kinds of pain that if you lean into them, you become an internet troll and no, 
fuck that. But there are lots of other kinds of pain. They're just like, no, 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 this is what's interesting. This is what we need to pay attention to. And it's okay that we don't know the answers yet. That's what makes it interesting. And the, uh, the radical honesty, you know, is something that I, I've been a huge fan of of lately, you know, just watching, I've been a longtime studier of, of behavioral psychology, which is a natural how I got into IT operations. Strange, yeah. you know, but it's it's funny how it all plays out. And yeah. what what I I I've really over years have become better at being very honest. And Me really- too. I grew up very fundamentalist, very repressed, very. Did I lose you? No, all good, all okay, good. Okay, cool. <laughs> it's raining here. I'm always a little sketchy about the internet. Yeah, no, I grew up very fundamentalist and very repressed, and it was not, it was considered very impolite to talk about your feelings, honestly. Like, the rudest thing you could do to a, to a person is ask them a question that would force them to say no to you, right? So you'd go through all these hoops to, like, be very delicate and set up the question exactly the right way so that you didn't have to ask they knew what you wanted and they can just offer it to you first. Like, and I, and I became an adult and I became not a fundamentalist and, and an atheist. And I just started realizing how much, how, how much fear I was holding on to. I just didn't, you know, I was raised to feel like, feel like that was not okay. And the more that my entire adult life has been a process of learning to be okay with being vulnerable, to be okay with not being right, to okay, be okay with not being right publicly and to be okay with learning publicly. You know, I really hate it when we, shame politicians for changing their mind like uh, someone is one of those famous quotes that attribute to like einstein and lincoln but they're like uh yes when when there's new information i change my mind what do you do sir you know that's right. <laughs> what being adult is all about is like confronting the fact that we don't know so much so much more than we can ever ever really know so why are we so wound up about always sounding right all the time and it even like it's funny, but it plays it in the simplest weird things. Like I'm so I'm I'm originally from Toronto. I've lived in Vancouver for years. I live in New Jersey most of the time. I'm I'm all I'm from all over the place. And I'm not a homer. I I liked the Toronto Maple Leafs because it was kind of neat. I could go see them. Then I loved the Canucks because they were winning. And I liked the Devils because I'm like it I don't need to be wherever yeah. I go on earth. I'm a diehard Leafs fan. Like yeah. I that's that weird thing and, and we have it through it's it's politics it's like it's it's evolution like yeah. you cannot believe that somebody at age 10 has the belief system that they're mm-hmm. going to have like they may have it but it it, it like you it's said you throw it's fully formed right. so, so everyone told me that when i became a founder i was going to have to shut that down i'm going to stop tweeting and i was going to have to stop being so honest and open and i wouldn't say that i haven't changed i've certainly changed i've become more guarded about certain things because um, you know, for example, I never want anyone who works for me to feel like I am subtweeting them. So right. I just won't do it, you know? And I tell them, if you feel like I'm subtweeting you, I promise you I'm not. If you feel like I might, even though I don't think I am, tell me. I would like to know that so I can stop, right? I only want to talk about situations that have resolved themselves and are not current because that's just an unfair thing to put on the people who you work with. There are a lot of ways in which I feel like um, there's a change in dynamic or power structures that I'm, I'm experiencing that is forcing me to. So, for example, I grew up, you know, I, I gained all of my habits uh, in communication um, in a very male-dominated industry where I had to be very loud and very big all the time, right, to be noticed. And so people would know that was my idea. You know, I do not speak up meekly in meetings. I'm like, this is the right way to go, motherfuckers. Like, follow me, right? I learned that, um, and I get a lot of joy from that. And 
you know, others around me have gotten joy from it too. And now I find that that's just completely inappropriate if I'm the leader of the company. And, and, I, and I realized that some people that worked with me were afraid to tell me no, or who were afraid of my, you know, my honest emotional, you know, um, what I felt like was just me responding honestly to what they were giving me. And, I, and I've had to kind of realize it's like when you play a musical instrument, right? When you're, when you're starting out, you're like bang, 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 bang with all your might. And the more expert you become, the more power you have, the more you have to have a light touch. The more you, and, and, and it's been difficult for me not to do that so much as to learn to find new joy in it, right? To, to rewire my brain to feel joy in having a very light touch and seeing someone, you know, come to the realization on their own. And, and, I, and I try to remind myself that it, I can have a light touch because I have more emotional range, right? I, I, I still have the ability to pound the keyboard if I feel like it. I'm a music major. This comes very naturally to me. Yeah. But I don't have to, right? And I can bring out richer tones if, if I learn to express, you know, the full range. Yeah, and it's, it's funny that we – I had a great conversation with someone recently – about like the our evolution as we walk into we talked about imposter syndrome and like changing jobs and how you have this weird sort of first tendency where like coming from I worked for a company and I was a customer of vendors and then all of a sudden I was a vendor mm-hmm. and the oh, first yeah. thing you do is you have this weird thing where you kind of feel like when you walk in the room you've got to like immediately defend yeah. where you came from and, and all this yeah. stuff and I said what I got better at as you got further into those conversations and more customer engagements then you started to go in and the first thing you said was like, Hey, so uh, tell me about what your team does and, and what are you, what's the focus area you've got Not all about you, you know? all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was really neat. And I said that, that what, that's what taught me over time was that you can learn so much more by letting them open it up for the first little while. And then yeah. I was drop in and said, Oh, just, yeah, I've, I'm quite kind of familiar with this. Luckily I came from this background you know, I ran a data yeah. center at scale for 10 years. So I, at least I get, so you can kind of like give little snippets that will help yeah. build the comfort level. When you versus- blow your watch straight out the gate and you've got nothing yeah. else, else left to back yourself up with. Yeah. The defensiveness of being a newly ven- uh, minted vendor is a real thing. I spent my career yelling at vendors and hating on them and making fun of them. Fuck. I, you know, it's so embarrassing to think about this, but I've spent many of my years as a young engineer like shitting on sales and marketing for not being, you know, as good as us an engineer, or not as effective or not as necessary. And I look back at that now and I'm just like, my God, <laughs> what an arrogant little prick I was, you know? So I feel like I'm doing penance now, trying to be like, all right, all of these business functions are equally necessary. It does not matter how beautiful of a thing you engineer or build if it can't get to the people who need it you know and that is just as creative and just as difficult and just as open-ended of a project as building the thing in the first place and it fucking disgusts me now the way i see mostly younger but not entirely younger engineers just lording it over these other disciplines that they need that's a really that's a really hard one to to like help people with too but i found it like it's like teaching it's them hard it's sorry go ahead yeah this is like how do you let somebody know that hey you're being really really terrible right now <laughs> yeah. yeah and the reason it's hard is because all well if you're in silicon valley at least like i am most of the structures around you are erected to like at, on the altar of your greatness 
everybody's telling you how how hard engineering is and how important and how necessary and they're bribing you you're making so much more money than all these kids who you know don't have an engineering degree like all of the incentives the structural incentives are around you to think really highly of yourself and we naturally like that. We really enjoy thinking really highly of ourselves, right? And so it takes a certain maturity to lean against that and go, I'm going to choose to humble myself or, or put myself consciously on the same level as the people who are equal to me. And that, and that leveling process is, is an interesting one that I, I personally correlate very much with maturity. Yeah, and the, the over time, again, I've like like you discussed, right? I, I've, I've gone through this thing of like my whole goal. I tell, I've told my team when I joined, I said, you know, my entire goal in life was to let, make sure that you never sold your product to me, right? That, mm. like, oh my God, I, wanted, yes. I wanted to be the gatekeeper to yes. it. And I feel like that's so my goal was to understand yeah. why, why did I do that? Like what, why does, why does this persona of yeah. person in a, in a defensive customer environment feel that, that that's the position they have to take. Yeah. And, and is there a way that we can kind of bypass that? I mean, let's be honest. So much of sales and marketing is just fucking obnoxious. Like it's just <laughs> so bad, you know, but that doesn't mean, but like it's the same with engineering. I mean, <laughs> the barrier to entry is slightly higher in engineering. You know, you have to like learn a certain amount of stuff, whereas sales and marketing feel very accessible to us, right? It feels to us like we could just waltz in and do that job without having to learn it. Now it's false, right? But at an entry level, it is easier. It is more naturally human. It, engineering is a very false and inhuman thing for us to practice. We have to train for a couple of years, right? Um, whereas sales and marketing feel like conversations. Now, at the peak of their discipline, I think there's no difference in difficulty. Um, but there's a difference in accessibility at the lower levels, which I think also contributes to our sense of, oh, I could do that, and this is annoying, and I could do so much better, you know? Eh, maybe you could, maybe you couldn't. It doesn't mean that we should never respect the discipline of people who are trying to do their best. Right. Oh, and I always say, find me the greatest developer, and when they leave, I'll find a team of people who will claim <laughs> they're the worst developer. Like they'll they'll go and refactor everything they did. Like it's there's this weird thing, even with with skill and with expertise. There's nuance. Yeah. <clears throat> there's changes. There's so many things and. Oh, you know, it's, and, the, it's, and the person it's who's the, unquote, there's no such thing as the best developer because there is a person who perhaps could be the best person in this point in time and place for this project. It's all specific and it's all contextual. Um, there's no such thing as a universally best developer. And a thing that I have been, there's a thing, you know how sometimes you, you say something for a while and you're like aspirationally, oh, I hope this is true. And then you actually get there and you find out it is true. Uh, for me, that's been learning the difference between great engineers who are solo versus great engineers who are engineers who are on great teams. Right. These are not the same skill sets. I would say that, um, and in fact, subordinating yourself to the team um, is the only way to build big, great things. Even fucking Linus Torvalds, look at him. You know, he couldn't write Linux on his own. It may have started with that, you know, seed of solo greatness, but but if you actually want to make a difference in this world, you have to become part of an organization and you have to be a good team player. The the team that we have at Honeycomb right now, I actually I actually hope none of them listen to this. I I used to <laughs> angst a little bit about how oh, we don't have a world-class team, you know, because we, we very intentionally, we went out and we got boot camp graduates and more junior folks, intermediate folks, and like we've built this team. It took a few months for everyone to like find their sea legs, but looking over the past year, 
I have never worked with a team that has shipped more consistently, more readily, more high quality work, who, who knows the business impact of what they're doing, can judge when to put the gas out and when to like throttle back. It is incredible. And yet when I look at these engineers and individuals, you know, there's a couple of them that I would say individually are like world-class. The rest of them are getting there. They're growing, they're learning, but they are incredibly good at playing on a team. And it has been very, it's been very humbling and also just awesome to watch that happen. You don't have to be the best solo engineer in the world. That isn't actually the most valuable skill set. What is valuable is being able to listen to each other, being able to iterate, being able to take direction, give direction, you know, being, being a good team player. Um, that's what actually builds great organizations and great products, learning from your mistakes and supporting each other. Well, it's, and watching them go through, watching the behaviors like going through Socratic discussions when you think about like features, like just it's, that's the difference versus like, you know, here comes your 10 X engineers. Like this is how it's going to go. I'm just yeah. going to, I'm going to code it tonight. That's on my depressing home. and discouraging. That's not inspiring. That doesn't make you want to rise to that level. That makes you feel disempowered. So I think this is a, this is the perfect sort of segue to one of the, my favorite threads. Yeah. God, I could go, I could list them all, but here's, <laughs> here's one. You, you went on, and, and I wish I, I'll, I'll try to try and find the link on. The idea was we, we as an industry are really pushing back on, on over-involvement, over burnout, a lot of different things. Yeah. And one of the challenges, of course, is that whether it's pager duty or, you know, I, I'm old enough that it used to be pagers, you know, then it was yeah. you know, SMS messages, whatever it's going to be, was that, you know, you shouldn't have to be on all the time and you shouldn't. You, you should leave at five and, and shut it off. You shouldn't code in the evenings. You shouldn't do whatever. Mm-hmm. And I know when I read this, the first thing I thought is I stopped at, at, at tweet one. And I said, okay, what would I want this to become? And I, I think to myself, I didn't become a successful you know, bunch of things over the course of my career by going home at five and then not mm-hmm. opening up my laptop until the next morning. I'm weird, but I You're think hungry. like, yeah. right, I, I really, I loved going home, finding time, kids go to bed, open up the laptop and like learn and do things. Mm-hmm. I was aggressively learning things mm-hmm. that were super uncomfortable yeah. for me. And it, what happened was progressively over my career that opened new doors that wouldn't yeah. have been open if I had kind of done that level thing. And then, so here I was, okay, tweet number two. And I followed this thread and you really went through this thing of the dichotomy uh, of a, as a founder as an as a strong and and really leading engineer in what you've done in your career, like if you had chosen to shut it down at five and not open it up until eight the next morning or whatever, mm-hmm. it you wouldn't have the opportunity. So, you know, what was let's yeah. unpack on that one. Yeah, let's unpack that because there is no conclusion, right? There is only a discussion to be had, um, and it will land differently with every individual who like everyone. Every single one of you is in charge of your own life, right? You get to decide what matters to you, what kind of life you want to live for. And you know that these are trade-offs, right? You choose one path, you don't you know, necessarily get another path. To me, um, there are a bunch of things going on here. Um, number one, the industry is maturing, right? Like when we were young cowboys, you know, they're really, I don't remember ever having a mentor or anyone to learn with learn from. Like if I wasn't you know, in love with it and doing it day and night, I wouldn't be where I am. Um, I do believe that we've gotten better as an industry at, um, at learning to management <laughs> and, and, and 
like time management and, and how to learn these things. So this is one thing. Um, also, the people who are now in their 30s and they have kids and they're like, I can't get page woken up by two things, right? right? Which is super legit. Um, and there's a different way of being when you're fresh out the door of college or whatever, your first couple jobs and you are scrappy as fuck, right? You're just like, I need to know everything. I'm behind everywhere. And there's a hunger there that may or may not be sustainable over the entire lifetime for everyone. Everyone's different, but most people have it earlier in their career if they actually enjoy their, their job. And I, and I would encourage people not to damp, damp that down too much. You know, let yourself be excessive, let yourself love it, right? Let yourself be, you know, follow your, you know, your heart. And if you're in love with something, do it because this will open doors, as you said, later on in your career. Um, that said, I feel like the industry is maturing into a place where you don't have to be an extreme person to do well. Um, you might not be a superstar, right? But as we just discussed, like you can be a really a part of an amazing team as a team player that is world-class and you don't have to be the best in the world at half a dozen different programming languages, right? Um, I, I think that what I was observing on it, what I was commenting on in that thread, it started with finding myself giving advice you know, to people just like gen generically like, oh, go home and whatever. And then realizing, <laughs> so my perspective has shifted, right? I'm not in the trenches with everyone, you know, just like, you know, fighting against the machine. Now I'm a boss. And sometimes I'm like, people don't seem to be working very hard. <laughs> so many engineers like in it. 11 and out at four like almost every day and they take a two-hour lunch and, and I, we need to be moving faster you know and, and and like and that so first of all I, I will say that every time that I have found myself um, starting to notice details like that I force myself to rewind and look at the big picture and be outcome oriented is this person is there is their output Am I happy with it, right? right. Um, if they're in, in the office for three hours a day and they're shipping code and their teammates are happy with them, and you know, then I have no business questioning their, their means. Like maybe if I were them, I would be putting in three times as many hours because I want to go farther and faster. But that's a personal decision, right? As their boss, I get to be outcome oriented. And so I will never comment on or critique where they choose to be with their body at any point in time or how, or how hard they choose to work. It's up to them how hard they want to choose to work. And I'm sure they know as well as I do that harder work leads to bigger outcomes, but I just need to be like comfortable with their performance. That's it. And this has been a, 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 an interesting and difficult lesson for me to learn is that not everyone is me. Not every, some people just want to do a good job as an engineer, which frees up their time and they have plenty of cash so they can go make fire art and do all this stuff in the woods. Now, yeah. a lot of times those people, I would not advise them to go to startups because startup uh, expectations and, and necessities are often so spiky, right? And we sometimes really need everyone to be hands on, hands on deck, all hands on deck. Sometimes it's fine for them to just coast for a week or two, but it's unpredictable. Versus if you're in a research lab or a bigger company, you have a lot more stability and predictability and your teammates won't feel let down by you if, you, if you're not pitching in when, when needed. Um, so there's types of jobs too. We're all over the place here, right? Yeah, um, but it, I love that it's... It's really, really hard when you, you have to think of situational awareness yeah. and 
was Which is weird. not something that teenagers and 20-year-olds are known for. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I know 40-year-olds are still haven't figured yeah. it out. But it's what's really weird too, and it, this is a problem I, I find is people in general, this is a human trait. We attain some level of comfort and success as a result mm -hmm. of bizarre levels of, of hard work. Mm -hmm. And then we forget that it sucked for like yeah. nine years. Yeah. And then we say like, I don't understand why, why someone like, yeah. why are we making these people work so hard? I'm like, remember, like we ground it out. Yeah. Like that's, that's yeah, what we, we did. did. And yeah. uh, one of my- It's going to be hard. Like this oh, yeah. is a very unnatural thing for human beings to master. It's going to be hard. And I do not think that we serve people well by setting expectations that they can walk out the door with a degree and do a job from 10 to five every day and in advance. Like it's just, you're going to have to stay hungry because it is so unnatural because it, because the world is moving at a pace much faster than humans evolved for. You're, if you want to have a long and thriving career, you kind of need to stay hungry, which to me means like, this is what was at the end of the most recent article that I wrote on engineering management. I, if you want to have a sustainable career, you kind of have to know yourself well enough to know what brings you energy and what saps your energy. And you need to be conscious about spending time. Maybe it's learning things, maybe not, but you have to spend enough time in that state of mind where you are gaining energy from the things that you are doing um, to to compensate for the time that you have to spend doing things that sap your energy. Um, and hopefully you find that learning things brings you energy and you should lean in that direction hard. It's tough to find the equilibrium and, and it's, it really I, I'm a weird, so I, like as a kid, I wasn't a sports person, hated sports, <laughs> really short skinny kid, couldn't do, couldn't do four chin-ups if I, if you put a gun to my head. But like here it was at 25 plus and, and I became a competitive cyclist just for funsies because I figured mm -hmm. out that I was actually reasonably good at it. Mm -hmm. And I started, and I, what I did was I loved the idea that I could be like good enough that mm -hmm. I could see how you could get to the next level. But I made a choice to like not commit 40 hours a week to training. And, and yeah. so I was going to be, you know, in top 20, but that was yeah. good enough, you know. And, Legit choice. Yeah. yeah. I always say that I'm like type, type A negative. Like I'm, yeah. not, I'm not quite, I'm not, I'm like A minus. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm aggressive. But you want to know where the bar is. You might not hit it, but you want to know where that bar is. Yeah. And part of it was I had to discover sort of what are the boundaries. Like I had to hit, I purposefully pushed myself to areas of severe discomfort physically, yeah. mentally, in a lot of different ways in work and whatever, because then it, I knew the edge. Yeah. And so when I got to the edge, I yep. recognized the scenario and yeah. it was, I was much more ready. What we find is we're now creating this like sort of nerf zone for fresh yeah. engineers and, and people that come in and they're like, they're like so, Hey, look, this is great. Depending on the right role I said, but yeah. do not think that you're going to be successful. Like startups are yeah. weird. Expect them to be hard. Like, don't expect yeah. it to be easy. Expect it to be hard. And you should want to do hard things because if it wasn't hard, everyone would be doing it. So for me personally, the, the main takeaway that I drew from this was I have dialed back. I have tried to stop giving any advice about how hard or not hard anyone should work. 
you know? So like Christine and I, my co-founder and I are both fucking workaholics. We love it. We gain so much joy from doing things and doing things well and working hard. This is true even before we had a company. In fact, that's part of why we did it. We're just like, well, if we're going to care more than the actual founders do, maybe it should just be our company, right? Uh, There's the best marker of, of exactly. a founder right there, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so we, but we know that that brings us joy. We, neither of us has kids, you know? We have partners who are pretty easy to please. Um, and I don't want any, now that I am in a position of more power and people are listening to me and taking my words more seriously in ways that I, I have not experienced and, and did, not, did not expect, I don't want people to hear that I am telling them to do anything one way or another because they need to find their internal compass. I don't want them to hear, you know, we realized that we were always telling people to go home, to take it easy, to work less, to blah, blah, blah. But these are not people who are necessarily working 60, 80 hours a week like us, right? And by us always pushing people to go home, take it easy, we actually did a disservice to some people who were perfectly fine and then we push them to under underachieve, right? <laughs> Which is shitty. <laughs> I don't want to be setting people up for failure. And so I have just tried to very consciously curb my impulse to tell anybody to work or not work. Um, and instead I try to just sudden, you know, here's what we need in this role. And then it's a conversation, you know, but here's the output that we expect. Um, and, you know, this would be a stretch goal and this would be amazing. But then here's what we need, right? And and just focusing on the outcomes and giving less advice is, is the practical takeaway that I, I have um, taken from this. I think the one of the things that people need to recognize, and this is this a, again, like the problem we have is we have difficult situations that get highlighted maybe in the news and such, and they're like, ah, that's yeah. that explains startup culture. Yeah. Whatever, like, yeah, no, no, no. I would never want to work in tech if all I did was read the newspapers. I'd be like, oh, what a terrible place. This is a fucking plum gig, you guys. This is like, this is the, the, this is the one industry in America where it's growing, you know, exponentially, where there's opportunity. This is the Wild West. Like, everyone, even the people who are underpaid in tech are paid well. Like, it, yeah. like every woman in the world should want to be in this industry. Fuck. Yeah, you think be better in any other industry? Like, it's no. like being a 30-person, you know, hockey player. You're like, you're in the NHL. You're riding the bench. Yeah. You're doing all right. Like, it's yes. not be the A player, but, hey, you're on the team. Yeah. You're already this in this team. next level. Like, people who are engineers are not smarter than other people. They're mostly luckier, right? They get their right. foot in the door at the right time, and which is why I am such a big proponent of opening that door wider, letting people try. I hate processes of hiring where it's all focused on trying to widow out everyone's weaknesses. Find where they're weak, find where they're not good enough, find the places that they make mistakes. Fuck that, you don't want me for my weaknesses, you want me for my strengths, and you need to know what they are, right? Like yeah. we ask every candidate that we have, how can we see you at your best? I want to know what you think your best is so that I can see if I can agree, first of all. If somebody tells you their best is over here and it's clearly not, well that tells me a lot about their judgment, you know? But I want to see them at their best so that I can then match their best and, and what they love to what we need, which is a lot of times we don't hire people not because it, they aren't amazing. They are. It's just not what we need, right? Because we're small. But I want to know what that is. And, and like, I'm not hiring anyone for their weaknesses. No. No, and, and it's... The, the other thing is we, I'd say we, I try and this is the, I hate, the one thing I hate about gross generalizations is they're so, so <laughs> you know, I, that everybody makes them like, no, no. So right. when I say we, I try and I try in my peer group, we try and you try, like we've, I talked to so many people and like, 
I don't go to my team and say, I expect you to work until it's done. I yeah. expect you to be in early and on Skype. I expect you to be accessible on the weekends. Yeah. And I try not to send stuff on the weekends and the evenings, yeah. but sometimes it just hits you and you're like, it's 8 yeah. p.m. Like, oh my God, I got this great idea. You I can be very explicit about the fact that I'm sending it, but there are no expectations. Right. And it is a big difference, but people have this thing like, yeah. by you, by you doing that thing that you're, well, you're on it, you're, you're sort of, you're subordinately creating this environment. Yeah. You're like, you're implying that you're working later. So therefore I'm like, you know, I really yeah. don't believe that. I, I, I believe that. People's I just, boundaries, you know, yeah. people who set really strict, strict boundaries for themselves. I don't log on, log on after five. That's great. But this is a negotiation. This is not a thing where there are particular rules where you could win versus not win. If you set that, ex if you're like, I will never log in after five, but then you like subconsciously or, or subtly like put expectations on people to be working late. That sucks, right? You can you do you do it no matter what your behavior is. It's all about expectations and performance and the signals that you give consciously and subconsciously. Everybody knows I'm a night owl. Everybody knows that I try really hard to stop working by one one a.m. Don't always succeed, and I'm in late, but I try to be in by noon. You know, and I just try. One thing I've learned is that you can't just say it once. You have to repeat it, and you have to be explicit. You you have to say you know repeatedly. I know I'm sending this late. I'm sorry. I have no expectations of responses until you know get back to me by, you know, Thursday or something like that. And, and then like, I'm just as much of a human being sadly as they are, um, which is a big thing that as a leader, um, I try to both remember and repeat their power is very dehumanizing in both ways, right? Like people always project so much stuff onto their bosses and and they are not always specific about what they're doing. They just expect something and you're not giving it to them. You don't know what it is and you're both frustrated. Um, power is dehumanizing. And I try to be relentlessly human. Um, and I try to be explicit about it so that people don't feel let down by me. But I also accept that they're going to be sometimes. And all I can do is try to create an environment where a reasonable person um, understands what I want. I say a reasonable person not to cast aspersions on people who don't, but just saying that people have stuff going on inside the road heads that I can't control. That's it. Like right? when, you, when you say reasonable, it's just like, I don't mean to stop your thought, but like we're not saying that you're reason in the le very literal sense. It's like we talk yeah. about rational and irrational. I mean like yeah. a psychological sense. The yeah. truth. When I say reasonable, it means that you can take in other information and ascertain. Ordinary, yeah. I'm not saying you're – unreasonable and you can't be yes. dealt with. I just mean like you, you had to take in a little extra data and go yeah. mm, situation. We're all individuals, right? And as I learn more individual characteristics about the people who report to me, then I know what triggers them or I know what's sensitive to them and I can add extra padding there. Right. Or I can not send that to them. Like my PM, I know that no matter what I say, he's going to feel like he needs to get back right away. So I don't send it after hours to him. Right. Like you get to know people as individuals and, Maybe this is my um, small company bias leaking through, but I feel like so many of these structures are dehumanizing enough that I, I will fight very hard to keep these relationships very personal and very human. And it's, it's incredible that 
we have like you've done it and you're very successful at sharing that and that's that's we need more people to do and and i found like even in, in larger organizations you can build like micro teams at least that can exist that way oh yeah and they they be they become the most successful subgroups within these organizations because they recognize that it's it's like the whole thing of you know it's the comfort of failure it's the sense of yeah. belonging stuff that you know like they tend to be have very days and then and it's yeah. cool and so you can be transparent about your things and sometimes oh we all have hard days and i'm gonna yell i'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna smash my mouse until it flies into pieces someday <laughs> like there's terrifying days sometimes yeah. and i'm just like oh like this is and if somebody were to say if i were then to ask somebody to do something and they physically see that i'm like yeah you know, irked or whatever like oh this is situational and then like nine minutes later i'm like super sorry wow that was that was a bad moment like are you are yeah. we good you know like when i asked you for something it was i was elevated or whatever and, and like it, i say this, like this tyrant but i don't do that <laughs> yeah no i know what you're saying emotional safety is an absolute these teams tend to be high performing because um because emotional safety is such a prerequisite um and because in order i believe engineering is a relentlessly creative act you know if you're doing anything worth doing it's a very creative intense it requires your full attention your emotional um, attunement to what you're doing um, it's a very creative act and um, as a team you need to have that sense of safety right that that liberates you to do your best work yeah, despite the a high the, trust environment, those are the words I was reaching for. I like right. to live my life in a high trust environment, and I've tried to, I've tried to make Twitter my own little extension of that. Right? I just choose to believe that I am operating in a high trust environment. Once it blows up in my face, but I can't live my life any other way at this point. I don't choose to. Yeah, that's that's probably the the most challenging. It is high trust, but it's like they they said, like yeah, the greatest the greatest thing about social media is that you have access to everyone and they have access yeah. to you. the terrifying yeah. side of it is that that those very same conditions right yeah do you think that there's a i don't i personally do not believe that we are any anything i think we're much better off and we continue to get better at things like i believe the the awareness and the hyper awareness of negativity is is far worse than the actual presence of negativity itself like there's a, a, and that's unfortunately like Twitter can uncover some of that. Like if you have a great sort of like a, a thread that's very open. And oh very yeah, there could be that. 200 people who are like, oh yes, this really resonated with me. And two or three people pick on the one flaw in the argument or the weakness and they pile on, they get very personal. That's all I can think about. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's yeah. that's what's terrible people are they think like oh because you're you know you've you've got your own company you've got, it's like you're immediately like you're immune to yeah. these things. like no, no. It's not at all. deeply personal it's deeply personal and yeah. we kind of talked i i said at the start i said like if i look at you i love that you lead as engineer slash ceo uh you know that there's a reason for that uh, and you also don't really i don't see the word founder you know put around there no, i love how you describe seem like an achievement to me it's i don't know and ceo i'm a very reluctant ceo i wanted to be cto um that was the that was the understanding when we started out there were three of us um i had to let one of the founders go um three or four months into it um and it created a hole <laughs> it's the one role that you can't not have as a ceo right um and i stepped into it and i agonized and i grieved over it because i have always 
said and assumed I will never have a job without engineer in the title. I just won't because it's so core to my identity in some ways, um, in ways that are both healthy and unhealthy. It just never occurred to me. It's not an aspiration. It was an anti-aspiration. I aspired to never have a job that wasn't an engineer. Um, and probably part of that has to do with being a woman in tech and constantly having to feel like you have to prove yourself and remind people that you're technical or whatever. Like, I just don't want to have to remind anyone. I don't want anyone to look past me while they're talking about the technical objectives. Um, so for a year or so, I tried to hire a CEO to replace me and gradually came to the realization that what we were trying to do was so new and so much of it was in my head that that couldn't be done. And I cried every day for a year. <laughs> it was really, really rough. And um, I, I really dislike the glorification of founders that happens in this valley. Like, come on, you know, the disparity between the wealth that gets given to founders versus the employees and the value that's created, it's, it's, it's dysfunctional, it is wrong. We tried to give as much as possible to our early engineers because they built it just as much as we did. I don't believe that the vision is any precious thing. It's all execution. You know, a million people have had any idea that happens to pop into your head. Like I was fortunate enough to have been leaving Facebook. Um, I've never been really, um, I've never had that prestige granted to me. I didn't graduate from college. I didn't go to high school for that matter. I was homeschooled. I dropped out of college. I was a music major. You know, I had some good jobs. Um, I was very good at my job, but I had never had that, that burnished credential until I was leaving Facebook and VCs were kind of just offering money. I had no product, barely an idea. And I was just like, I owe it to the world to take this. You know, I, I'm a woman. This is never going to happen to me again. So I'm never going to another big company again. Um, right now, I'm leaving Facebook. I'm a little bit famous, and so people want to give me money. So I took it, right? And this is an idea. This is a thing that I needed to do exist in the world. Fully expected to have failed by now. Um, but it became bigger than we had thought it was. Like there was a kernel of truth there that is where the, the world is moving to. And we were able, after much grief and anguish, we were able to figure out ways to articulate it. Everybody was telling us this was a solved problem. You know, ah, it's taken care of, it's done. Everybody's done this, eye rolls. And, we, and I was just insistent that I had this. Yeah, we can talk about the genesis of the company at some point if you want. But I just knew it was my duty to all womankind <laughs> to start a company. And here we are three years later. But I don't feel like, you know, that I was like, you know, some founder just like rising from the ashes. And like, I don't feel like I'm categorically different than any other fucking engineer in this town. It just happened to have extra money. What, what's and the sort of the humility of the way you approach it is what makes you very accessible and and what what really gives you incredible you know, very strong credibility so I should say incredible credibility literally like strong credibility incredible credibility <laughs> because uh, I there's a and this is a tough one like calm structure and responsibility I heard a, and actually it was a it was a, an interview with Billy Corgan lead singer of Smashing Pumpkins so originator founder founder of a band mm -hmm. right. Yeah. And at one point when they were getting their first deal, he said, he described that, you know, well, because you write all the music, you're going to get like your producer, mm -hmm. writer, whatever. And they said, mm -hmm. so when you write this, you have, you have to make a choice now. Do you include them in the writer's credit or, you know, mm -hmm. this is how it's going to play out. And he said, well, after lots of thought and lots of discussion, he said, like, I've literally created every note of this music and mm -hmm. I, 
use it more. And so I'm going to take this. And he recognized that it was going to introduce a power dynamic mm-hmm. and comp dynamic. And he says, it seems minor at the time because it's literally pennies on the play. Mm-hmm. But when you get a million record sales and yeah. you now are, are sort of exponentially more compensated than other members in the band. But he says at the same time, he had the greater responsibility, which yeah. it's, you know, as a, and that's the, the downside founder isn't, isn't glory. <laughs> it's, no. Not an, I, I'm, I'd be proud to be able to say I was one just because I knew I was proud of myself enough to take the mm-hmm. run at like that mm-hmm. and to, to be responsible for others. Mm-hmm. Like I love the team. I love to be part of a founding team. Mm-hmm. I'm not the one that's going to start it from ground up. I know? like that. I like that approach to it. I like that way of thinking about it. I think that it's very rare around here and there's a lot more of people slapping the founder label on themselves so that they feel like they belong to a club. I just have no interest in joining that club. So <laughs> I have a very relentless. For all of us <laughs> for, for being that way. I, I'm kind of very, this is why it's very difficult for me to go to therapy. I'm very contrary. Like as soon as I know that somebody wants me to move in direction X, I am backed out the other door. I just, I, I kind of have to fight that impulse to play on teams, <laughs> but yes, thank you. So the, you know, I, I literally was said we could go on for hours. This is particularly. Wow. Has it already been as long? I know. Wow. We're, we're like already starting to wind up. I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I do want to take a few minutes. We'll do a bigger, I want to do a bigger discussion with you on kind of the exactly. real challenge, but like, let's, let's talk quickly about kind of honeycomb. Uh, you know, the, if you could lay the elevator pitch, God, mm-hmm. I feel like BC now. Um, and you know, what's the, what's the challenge that you're solving and, and then we'll spend some more time on another occasion and really kind of dive in. Cause I'm, I love, yeah. I love the challenge that you're solving. <laughs> so. Totally. totally. So and I've been an ops engineer all my life. I love being the first infrastructure engineer who comes in and like helps the product grow up. And uh, that's what I did at parse, which was the job that I had before this. It was a mobile backend as a service. We got acquired by Facebook in 2013. And this was around the time that I, I was leading a small team at that point. I was coming to a horrified realization that we had built a product, a platform that was basically undebuggable by some of the best engineers in the world. Um, it, was, it was not that we didn't know how to do it. We knew how to do it, but it was time consuming and awful. Um, because like, you know, every day someone comes to you like, press is down. And he's like, price is not down. Like, behold, my wall, my wall full of green dashboards. Like, everything is working perfectly. Um, but, like, we gave developers a lot of freedom to write queries and upload them. And I just had to make them work, write JavaScript, upload it, had to make it work, make sure that it didn't, you know, stomp over any noisy neighbors or co-tenancy problems. It was it was very comp- complex interaction of stuff on the server side. So I dispatched an engineer. I'd go look, and it would take us often hours, if not days, to track down why they thought it was slow. Sometimes they didn't turn on their Wi-Fi. Sometimes it was like a full table. Didn't matter. It, was, it, it took a long time. And I tried everything out there. I tried every product, every philosophy, and it wasn't helping. Um, the, the one thing that finally helped us get over that hump was this product, this service at Facebook called Scuba, which you can Google it. There's a white paper out there. Um, and it's, it's but ugly. It's like aggressively hostile to users. Um, it does one thing, it does one thing well, and it lets you slice on, you know, dimensions in near real time that can have arbitrarily high cardinality, um, meaning that, so high cardinality means like if you have a collection of, say, 100 million users, 
um, the highest cardinality dimensions will always be anything that is a, a unique ID, right? UUIDs or social security right. numbers. Um, high cardinality, but somewhat lower, would be first name and last name. Low cardinality is like gender and lowest of all, presumably is like species equals human, right? So all of the monitoring and metrics tools out there really specialize in low cardinality stuff, right? <laughs> and, and if you try to add like a process ID as, as a dimension, well, you blow up Datadog and they shut you down and, and you're screwed. Um, so this let us, like just getting our stuff into Scuba and building some scaffolding, let us drop this time to debugging these very complex problems from hours or days to seconds, like repeatedly so. Like it was not even an engineering problem anymore. It was a support problem that like sales could do. Sales and marketing could do this. Like in real time with a customer on the phone, they could go click, click, click. Oh, I see. Uh, you just uploaded a query and it's doing a 5x full table scan and that won't work, right? Ah, like, it was mind-blowing. So, like, we, we got that working and I, I'm an ops, right? I was immediately onto the next problem. I did not even, like, slow down to think about why it had such an impact on us until I was leaving Facebook. And I was planning going to be an engineering manager at Stripe or Slack and I suddenly went, oh, shit. I don't know how to engineer anymore without this tooling that we've built. Like, it's not just about, oh, the site's down, let's debug it, or, oh, this customer's complaining. It's, it's, it's embedded itself into, into every part of how I decide what to build, you know, the impact of what I'm gonna build, how I roll it out safely, how I know that what I think I've built and deployed actually has the impact that I expected it to. Um, it's, it's so much more, it's like so far, like, yes, it helps when it's, shit's on fire, but that's like the least bit of it. Um, it's like, you know, I'm very blind. I, I have glasses. It's like trying to go back to driving without my glasses. It's, it's just unthinkable. It would be a different discipline. So and we, I do we forget the access you've got? Like when you're used to having that nearby, like, yeah. oh boy, we got to yeah. build that thing from ground up now. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I could not even, I could not even think of uh, what it would be like to, to do without it. So um, when, you know, some VCs were offering some money, I was just like, well, this has to exist. Um, and, and for like the first year or so of building it, my co-founder, Christine, uh, was at Honeycomb 2, she, Honeycomb, at Parse 2, she built our analytics product. And she had had a similar experience where we built this fancy analytics product on top of Cassandra, time value series, et cetera. And customers kept wanting to ask questions that they couldn't answer now in the analytics tool. She was very frustrated by that because she would fall back to Scuba to answer their questions for them because it couldn't be done in the tool because it wasn't flexible enough. So she was frustrated. So we started working with this, but for like the first year or two, we, full we thought this was just a platform problem. Only platforms are going to have this experience of, you know, it's, you know, if you have a platform for 100 sites, you basically have 100 different workloads to manage and, and it's very complex. Um, but the more we looked at it, the more we realized this is not, a platform problem. This is a pure function of complexity, right? The, the range of possible answers to a question um, describes whether or not you can use your intuitions and dashboards and jump immediately to the solution, or if you kind of have to start brute forcing it, right? Yeah. And and this is a this is the edge that everyone is skating towards real fast. Um, with a lot of people, they go over the edge with microservices. You know, suddenly the hardest part of debugging the system is not debugging your code. It's knowing which part of the system the code lives in that you need to debug. Which <laughs> right. is a whole different story, right? And some people who are running monoliths have, go over this edge just because they have a lot of different storage systems or, or they um, have 
a platform or they have a really rich feature set or, you know, they're using Kubernetes or using all these ephemeral like elements that pop in and out of existence in their systems. They can't even predict what infrastructure they're going to have today, let alone monitor it for the problems that they think might happen, right? So it's this whole like taking a step back and focusing not on, you know, here's a set of problems I expect they're going to happen. I can monitor for them and, and find them. It's like, okay, we have no idea how the system's going to break. We accept it's probably already broken in many ways, just haven't gotten important enough for us to have to care about them. And focusing on resiliency and, and like having this richer conversation with, with your systems. It also dovetails with like the fact that software engineers increasingly are on call and this is necessary because there's that virtuous feedback loop where the person who just shipped the change has the context, knows what changed, sees the alert, fixes it immediately, customers are happy, right? Versus if you split that up into different functions where the people who are shipping changes have no connection to the performance of the systems and the people who are trying to do battle with the system have no idea what changes are being made, right? It's insane. We can't do well for our customers in this new world of distributed systems. And PS, we're all distributed systems engineers now. So that's right. In case you missed it. <laughs> in case you missed it, and you should probably ask for a raise, by the way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's that's what Honeycomb does. It does it really elegantly. Um, our customers are constantly surprised at how easy these problems are if you don't make them hard. And the the one thing that that you do well at uh, among many things is you you add passion to complexity. You know, we understanding and unveiling the unfortunate and real complexity of situations, personal, uh, system based, uh, and and you tell you tell it well, and, and your honesty and credibility comes. Being through. in my thirties is amazing. Life ah. is better. <laughs> Well, with that, Charity, unfortunately, we gotta we gotta wind down. But thank you very much. This has been a pleasure. I am definitely going to steal some more of your time uh, to share some more more of these stories. And uh, so, again, how do folks find you online if they want to interact and 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 see the the stuff that you're working on? Uh, Twitter is Mipsy Tipsy. Um, Charity.wtf is my blog. Honeycomb.io is the company, and there's a big blog at Honeycomb.io as well, and all the technical stuff. I, I second that and, and, and thank you again for, for all that you're doing and all that you're sharing with the industry. It's, it's a pleasure to, be, pleasure to be alongside and at least to witness it, even if I can't come in and, and, uh, and join it directly. It's, it's, it's great to see it happening. Thanks, Eric. You're listening to today's Cool Palsy Podcast.